Welcome to the Healing Pain Podcast. Your host, Dr. Joe Tata, leads the conversation around the way pain is treated in the U.S. and around the world with experts from the fields of medicine, physical therapy, nutrition, personal development, exercise, psychology, and more. Each week, you can listen to receive free information about ways to treat and reverse chronic persistent pain. Now, here is Dr. Joe Tata. Hey there, welcome to another episode of the Healing Pain Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Joe Tata. As always, it's great to be here with you where we talk about pain care and the latest pain science. This week on the podcast, we are talking about expectation and bias and how they influence the outcome for patients who have chronic pain. If you've been following along with this podcast, you know that pain is highly modifiable by psychological factors. And one of those psychological factors includes expectation. And today we're going to be speaking with Dr. Mark Bishop all about expectation and bias in pain medicine. Mark is a physical therapist with 30 years of experience managing musculoskeletal disorders. Currently, he is on the faculty at the University of Florida in the Department of Physical Therapy, where he teaches in professional and graduate programs in addition to working in research. His research has focused on the mechanisms of efficacy for conservative interventions for pain, particularly manual therapy, and has been recognized with multiple research awards. He is a Catherine Worthingham Fellow of the American Physical Therapy Association and was recently recognized by the APTA for advocacy work related to the promotion of physical therapists as non-pharmacologic alternatives to opioid therapy for chronic pain. On today's podcast, you will learn about patient expectations, how they are related to rehabilitation outcomes, how provider biases influence these expectations, and what are the ethical implications for applying expectation into clinical practice. As always, if you're new to the Healing Pain Podcast, welcome to our tribe. Make sure you sign up for the mailing list so I can send you a new episode each and every week. Hop on over to www.drjotata.com forward slash podcast. There's a little box on the right-hand side of the page where you can enter your name and your email address and I'll send you the latest episode each week directly to your inbox. Okay, let's get started with Dr. Mark Bishop. Hey, Mark, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you here today. Thanks, Joe. I'm really happy to be with you talking today. Yeah, you have a great new topic that we're going to dive into about expectation and bias in the world of physical therapy and pain care. Um, It's something we haven't explored yet. Really interested to kind of piece through some of the great research you have on it. Before we start out, I like to ask a lot of people come on the podcast is just to tell us about where you are today, what you're researching, what you're working on, and kind of what your journey has been to land where you are. Thanks for the question. So right now I work at the University of Florida. I'm faculty in the PT department here. I have affiliations with the Center for Pain Research and Behavioral Health. And UF has a pretty vibrant pain research committee, I mean, community kind of through the Pain Research and Intervention Center of Excellence. Uh, Currently, our current focus is really thinking about plasticity of pain and how we can use plasticity to help pain management. I think it's my opinion that people think about plasticity as, as a way to make pain 
worse, but if we're able to successfully modify someone's pain experience, then we're also looking at a positive form of plasticity. And so we're kind of thinking of different ways we can make your nervous system more plastic so responses can be bigger, particularly in those people with chronic pain where potentially plasticity has left their nervous system less responsive. They have less variability, less flexibility to adapt. So can we find ways to improve that? The journey here took a long time. I trained in Australia and was a sports guy. and That's all I was ever going to do. And in fact, I remember telling Gwen Jull when we finished neuroscience, that was the last time I was ever going to think about the brain because I was a manual therapy sports guy and that's all I was going to do. And I had the great opportunity to go to Canada and work in pro sports there and learn from some manual therapy people in Canada and then came to the US where at that time there wasn't a lot of sports physiotherapy. That was the domain of athletic training. So the first job that I got here in the US, they said, well, we have a spine management program. And I really wasn't that confident at thinking about managing spinal pain. So there was a cohort of us who, like every nerdy physio, would go to the library on a Sunday when the new issue of Spine came out and we'd read the spine and that kind of started this interest in learning more. And it was right around the time in 94 when ACPA, I can't remember what that acronym stands for, it's now like the uh, quality research group, but they put out the first guidelines for back pain that I'd ever read. And that also got us thinking about how we could more systematically think about managing spine pain and pain in general, which eventually then led to me taking classes at night and finally getting a PhD. I started that journey looking at pain, but then about halfway through transition to thinking about pain and movement, which then led to working with folks who had Parkinsonism. And so, you know, we did a lot of neuroscience there. That's the last time I saw uh, Gwen Jell was at a, a conference a couple of years ago, and she thought it was pretty ironic that almost everything I do now is related to how you think and what's going on in your nervous system and all that type of stuff. So once I finished that PhD work, kind of transitioned back into pain, thinking particularly about manual therapy, which is one of my first loves and why that is so effective. Can we be more effective? How do we help that 20% of people or so who don't respond and so on and so on? And that, and that kind of has led to the way we're thinking now. I know I'm being a bit long-winded, but just one more anecdote here that the thing that I've been really fortunate about here at UF is the great collaborations with clinical psychology who have really influenced our thinking about aspects of care, aspects of interventions that potentially we weren't thinking about when we're just looking at what happened when I push on a joint or move a muscle, we were focused very peripherally and the psychologists were the ones who said, well, did you ever ask the person what they were thinking? 
an aha. We started asking people what we're thinking and that's kind of led to the way we think about this now. Interesting. So it's interesting that you kind of have come full circle. Sounds like you started out as a manual therapist and went into the kind of the neuroscience and now you've married the two, which I think is great. And I think we probably need to see more of that in physiotherapy and just pain care in general. When did you start researching about expectation and how did that come about specifically? That came about one of our psychologist collaborators in the early 2000s developed something called the Patient-Centered Outcome Questionnaire. And they were looking at outcomes for just chronic pain management in general. And one of the questions they asked on, or several of the questions, one was, how much change would you need to think treatment to be successful? What do you expect to happen? And that got us thinking a little bit about what we were doing in the manual therapy research. And then a name some people might recognize, Joel Bialowski, was working with Steve George. And for his dissertation, he did a couple of studies looking at, can I manipulate your expectations by the way I talk to you? And if those things are manipulated, how does that affect the immediate outcome? And I think that led to Joel's early paper with me and Josh Cleland talking about expectations as an overlooked part. And Joel's dissertation then went on to examine that more closely and kind of laid the foundation for our group to really begin to focus on this aspect of care, which quite frankly is commonly thought about in lots of other types of care. We just hadn't thought about it much in manual therapy and in the physiotherapy management of pain. And so that's kind of how it started. And just about everything we do now has an emphasis or certainly a large component that revolves around what you're thinking and what I'm thinking as we provide the care. I love that, that open-ended question. Um, what do you expect is going to happen or what do you expect to happen? It's such a powerful question. Because I think so often the emphasis is maybe we explain to some of what the treatment is going to entail, how many sessions, what it might feel like. But what do you expect is going to happen is a really big one that I think is kind of an eye-opener. I hope a lot of people start to include that in their, maybe their intake. Yeah, I would agree. We have some other papers where it turns out that the six-month outcome of treatment is predicted most strongly by asking that question day one. So, okay, Joe, do you expect to be recovered in six months? So that kind of was a stronger predictor than what treatment we did for you, your other characteristics, this idea that, and that's an example of a predicted expectation. So what the person thinks is going to happen really influenced how they perceived the results. Mm. independent of what we measured, independent of what we did. And in the end, my opinion would be is that your recovery is your opinion. Are you feeling better? doesn't matter if I measure something different. You're the one who is living with whatever it is. And so, you know, that's another thing that I found a little bit almost shocking right at the start. You know, 30 years of practicing these techniques and I'm really quite good at this particular technique. And it turned out that uh, what you thought at the start before we even did anything 
was the most important part of that management. Oh my God, that's fascinating. Because like you said, through my mind right now, I was going all the different techniques I've studied, continuing education courses, things I'm still studying. And again, I wonder always if the power lies in the patient and not necessarily in us, or more importantly, how we help to facilitate people through the process that they're going through. I have questions related to that topic, but let's first start with just kind of basic. What is expectation? How can you define that for us? I would say simply an expectation is a thought or something that what is about to happen. And in the medical literature, there's many different types of expectations. I think I read a paper a couple of years ago that said there's about 64 expectations that someone comes to a treatment. But those have been nicely summarized by, I think it's Thompson and uh, Sunil, into four broad categories that seem to work, at least for my simple mind, and that's normative expectations and that's might be what I expect when I show up to your office I expect somewhere to sit I expect to be able to find parking that I will do some forms these kind of what are the kind of procedural things that I expect to happen while I'm there then there's my ideal expectations and I conceptualize those as my hopes what do I hope in the best possible out best possible world what is going to happen Then there's a third set, which are the predicted ones. These are what do I think is actually going to happen, which is different from my hope, right? So I have this ideal picture of what I would like to happen, but what do I think is actually going to happen to me as a result of this? And then the fourth one, which is a little bit nebulous, but I think a great place for physios is this unformed expectation. There's things you don't know what to expect. And I, through our interaction, have the opportunity to help shape or guide those a little bit. And I think that touches on what you were talking about before, this kind of thing. Are there things that you and I can work on that you're unaware of or you don't know any or you have questions that can help guide your recovery? Excellent. So it's a great framework. And Mark uh, wrote a great paper. I'll link to it in the show notes. It's called Individual Expectation, an Overlooked but Pertinent Factor in the Treatment of Individuals Experiencing Musculoskeletal Pain. It came out in 2010 in uh, Physical Therapy Journal. It's a great resource. So if you are a physio or someone else who's interested in expectation, you can read that. It's a really tremendous resource. So when we start to think about expectation as far as how it works, let's say, in the nervous system, in the brain, in our body? What are the kind of physiologic mechanisms that are happening? Oh, there's several different ways that expectations work. And if I can give a plug, there's some good papers on this very topic by Fabrizio Benedetti, who is an MD who has, he and his collaborators have done extensive work on how this fits together. Primarily, expectations that I have feed into the placebo mechanism. And one of the things I'd just like to touch on is when some people hear placebo, they're thinking about a passive thing or a negative thing. But certainly the brain imaging and a lot of the neurophysiological studies show that when the placebo mechanism is activated, 
the same areas of the brain are engaged. You've got an engagement of opioid pathways and a couple of other pathways that are working. And you have actually profound physiological changes in response to this overall mechanism. And that's not just for pain. I mean, there's some great studies in folks with movement disorders. You can condition hormonal responses. Another Benedetti paper, a great one, looks at you can actually condition someone to release growth hormone through a placebo mechanism. And that is a pretty profound physiological impact. So placebo itself, I think, needs it's got a branding problem and it still is seen as a very passive, nothing sort of thing. And it's anything but. It's a tremendously active neurological process. And I think you could reconceptualize it as like your own endogenous capacity to change your physiology. If I told you that I was about to do a treatment and we're actually going to enhance the active cortical mechanisms that engage your endogenous pain relief, that might be better than saying to you, this technique uses your expectations to cause a placebo effect. I think it's part of that whole physiological cascade. That also includes things like learning, beliefs, a whole lot of other cognitive issues, as well as the physiological changes. Mm, fascinating. I think uh, I was just at World Congress from the International Association for the Study of Pain, and there was a couple of placebo lectures that I sat in on. And to your point, I think the word placebo, we need a new branded name for it, because placebo thinks I'm going to give you this little sugar pill, and you're kind of going to go away, where there's so much more to what placebo is, and we can really use it to help people in their treatment. I guess along those lines, if we start to, you know, balloon and expand that conversation a little bit, and this ties into expectation as well, what are the ethical implications for understanding what expectation is, how it works, and then communicating with your patient? Right. So my opinion would be that if I know a way to engage you actively in your own recovery, that I should probably use that to enhance your ability to get back to whatever you're doing. The fact that every intervention that is provided probably includes an element of this mechanism means to me that we're already doing this. And I think ethically, if I can enhance that to make things better, then that is a good thing. I think the conversation begins to change when people are thinking about paying for care versus best care, slightly different conversation. And the ethics, to my mind, have really revolved around, can I charge you for something that essentially you're doing yourself? That would be my opinion on that conversation. And once again, I think if that allows your recovery. And I know that a lot of medication efficacy, some of the movement disorder management, a lot of these surgical interventions, if that mechanism is a large part of recovery and all those things, then I think ethically we're okay. I still need to engage with you. I still need to do something. I suppose I could talk to you on the phone but I don't know if that would engage the effect as much as if you and I embark on the journey together and I'm guiding you and helping you through that 
process. So that is still an active intervention by me. So, yeah, I think ethically we're okay with that if we can reconceptualize it away from a passive nothing. As soon as we get away from it being a passive nothing and recognize that it's a profound mechanism, then I think that'll change the conversation a little bit. It's interesting. As you're talking, in my mind, I'm kind of going back quite a ways. I've been practicing since 96. And when I first started practicing, an ACL, post-operative ACL repair, probably was a rehab of about seven months. And then shortly after I started practicing, they came out with these accelerated protocols, which are five months, four months. um, And patients would come in actually thrilled because the physician would tell them, we're going to put you on an accelerated protocol and you're going to get better faster than patients we've had in the past. And of course, not everyone always was able to go kind of step by step on that accelerated protocol, but a lot of people did. And I wonder if that's a version of expectation in, in motion in the communication between the physician or the physio or perhaps, you know, the entire team. Yeah, I think it's probably a powerful example of it, that particularly that sort of instruction coming from someone who may be viewed as an expert or an authority in that for them to say, yes, you're on this new protocol that will cause you to return earlier, then, okay, I'm expecting to return earlier. I may be willing to do or accept things a little bit differently than if you said, slow down, this is going to take you two years or something like that. So yeah, I would say that anytime we're engaging with the person, we're modifying or molding their predicted expectation. It's interesting because a lot of practitioners are very cautious about giving chronic pain patients a time frame when they're going to start to feel better or when the pain's going to subside, alleviate, go away. There's so many different terms that people use. But it's interesting to think is there a place to talk about time frame with people that might help them in a way? Yeah, of course, based on evidence, because we still have yes. to practice in a way that is evidence-based. Absolutely. I think that's a very important thing to emphasize, that in all these conversations, it's important that you're not misrepresenting and not overly confident and that type of thing. But certainly someone with chronic pain, maybe the conversation wouldn't be that your pain will go away, but say, we can get you back to activity or what is it you want to do? We can get you you back to your social interactions and your goals, you know, give them some sort of time frame. I think that is perfectly adequate. We probably can't say your pain will go away, but say, we'll teach you some ways to kind of deal with it when it gets bad, but you should be back to doing things in whatever time frame you and the patient agree on. And then as a practitioner, how do we start to notice our own biases in the way that we're communicating or the type of treatment techniques that we're adopting and using in the clinic? I think it's such an important question (laughs) right at this moment in the pain science world where there are certain techniques and treatment interventions that are extremely popular and there are others that have a huge evidence base that people are just kind of ignoring. So that's a very intriguing question. How do I become aware of my biases? Quite frankly, the only way I became aware is when people like Joel were doing the work and if I was providing interventions in a study and so I had to fill out this thing saying, 
which intervention do I prefer to do? Which one do I expect to help this person? Which one do I not expect to help this person? And so it became very obvious to me I'm, my bias was towards manipulation and exercise. Those were my biases, I think, until you begin to actively think about that type of stuff. You may not be aware of those sort of things. So I think if I'm really honest about it, I have a bias towards mobilization in the cervical spine, manipulation in the thoracic and lumbar spine. I think I could even break it down more like those. Yeah. And certainly some of our more recent work has kind of indicated that my belief in my ability to help you, my self-efficacy, actually impacts our alliance. I don't know if you've heard that term, the therapeutic alliance sort of thing. So if you perceive me to be well-trained and competent, your confidence and expectations in me rise. The way I get self-efficacy is through doing things over and over and getting confident, having some successes and those type of things. So certainly me having a bias towards manual therapy and having used that for 30 years, I'm very confident in my capacity to change something in you. And our interactions, I'm not saying, hey, I'm awesome, I've got the hands that will heal you, but there's something in the way we interact that builds confidence, your confidence in me to help you out. So that bias is actually useful in kind of building the alliance. Mm, Excellent. So I want to switch gears for just a moment because I spent almost an entire week at uh, World Congress. Fantastic presentations. I think every presenter there is really top of the class. Some are basic science researchers, some are psychologists, some are physicians. Taking the perspective from advocating for the physical therapy profession, I noticed that physical therapy was extremely underrepresented at the conference. I mean, it's a week-long conference. It goes from eight in the morning to sometimes seven at night. And I would say probably less than 3% of the conference were PTs or physios. Mm -hmm. We had decent representation during the poster session, but (laughs) the actual lectures I found to be a little disappointing as far as physical therapy goes. So as a researcher yourself, what recommendations do you have for our profession to be more visible? Great question. I would say probably the most visible physio I I think of immediately from the U.S. is Kathleen Sluka, and she gave a plenary up there, and certainly Steve George is pretty involved in ISP. But there's certain parts of ISP that are heavily dominated by physiotherapists. There's a special interest group, pain, mind, and movement, almost all physiotherapists, and certainly people are involved in those special interest groups. But I think the challenge, I use the term parochial, I'm not using that in a negative way, but we kind of talk to each other Mm. a lot. There's a couple of people like Kathleen and Steve who have focused on getting involved in pain management in general rather than pain management by physiotherapy, physiotherapists particularly. There's some newcomers that are kind of rising up through the IASP ranks and American Pain Society ranks. People like Marilella Patu, for example, is does chronic pelvic pain, and she's quite involved with the pelvic pain research through 
International Pelvic Pain Society, which is part of IASP. So I think that we'll begin to see more physios kind of at that level as really we're starting to do a lot of the work as a profession in the rehabilitation and particularly the non-pharmacological rehabilitation with the whole uh, crises around medication and our, quite frankly, failure to really manage chronic pain, and I'm talking about we as a healthcare system, I think physical therapists and physiotherapists are ideally situated to kind of take the lead and ownership of that because it's really stuff that we do and we do well. I'm hopeful that we will begin to see more rehabilitation people rather than once again I'm not being pejorative but rather than like neuroscientists and pharmacologists as the only people who are talking about how do we manage pain certainly another an international person I respect a lot is Yonage from Belgium who's doing a lot of the stuff with chronic pain and plasticity and that obviously Lorimer and these are all physical therapists and physiotherapists who are at the forefront of a lot of these sort of things. So yeah. I think we should, we'll see more from those people as we move ahead. Great. And then to kind of peel the onion layer back one more, within our country, within the United States of America, a big country, lots of money, lots of resources. What do we have to do on the university level to see physiotherapy and the pain research by physiotherapists expand? A couple of different things. I think the APTA made a strong move last year, in my opinion, when they adopted the IASP pain curriculum for physical therapists, or endorsed it rather. So hopefully that may provide a resource for programs who are looking to incorporate a little bit more about pain science. I mean, a couple of those papers about how much of medical curricula and physio curricula are actually devoted to pain are a little shocking, really, to know that it's only a couple of hours out of three years. And so as programs begin to think more about that, they now have this resource. So that's good. The APTA has also put together a couple of work groups to kind of develop public-facing information as well as clinician-facing information. So I want to learn or improve my ability to manage pain. Here's some resources and some training. And then as far as the, the research goes, there's just an opinion. I think as, as a profession, we need to incorporate a lot more collaborators from psychology potentially to be a bit more comprehensive in our own studies so we can think about things like sleep, mental health, and some of these less traditional domains that physiotherapists manage. I'm not a psychologist. I can't do cognitive behavioral therapy, but I can identify someone who's going to benefit from that probably better than I am. I can apply some principles to my treatment, and I can incorporate some of those things in my studies. Uh, So I think we're beginning to get some momentum to improve our ability to do this. Certainly people have recognized that we kind of have been under training potentially and being able to thread some of these things through a couple of different courses is going to be useful. The other thing is if we can be clear whether we're studying pain the symptom 
versus maybe chronic pain, the disease, nervous system disorder. I think that will help because at least I know I have spent some time confusing those and now I'm thinking about those separately as given our studies a lot more clarity. Mm, that's a great one. The last point I think was really powerful because people definitely think I that's never really answered my mind until you just said it probably. So that's a really good point to clarify for I think both patients and practitioners. Mark, it's been great chatting with you today. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Can you tell everyone where you work, how they can find you so they can learn more about the great research you're doing? Absolutely. So my email is very simple, bish, B-I-S-H, at ufl.edu. Or people can direct message me on Twitter. I'm at physiobish, all one word. Excellent. So I want to thank Mark for being on the podcast, a great physical therapist, educator, and researcher. You can tweet out to him by going to at physiobish, that's at P-H-Y-S-I-O-B-I-S-H, and make sure to share this podcast out with your friends and family on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, wherever your favorite social media handle is. We all have our favorite these days. If you're new to the podcast, make sure you hop on over to drjotata.com forward slash podcast where you can sign up for the newsletter. Each week, I send you a new podcast. We have great information like the type of information that Mark presented today. Once again, I want to thank you all for being here, and we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Healing Pain Podcast. For more information on this episode and access to links discussed, please visit drjotata.com and click on the podcast tab where you will find the blog post for this and all previous episodes and can sign up for Dr. Joe Tata's email list to receive the latest information on chronic pain. Also, make sure to stay connected on his Facebook page at Dr. Joe Tata. 